Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reel. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right, another episode. I got, Sooner or later here in the next uh, month or two, I'll sit down and fix it so that that slowly kind of fades out or something. <laughs> I don't like the abrupt stop on it. But Britt Hartley, how are you? It's so good to see you. I'm doing great. We had a huge positive response from our last podcast with Nick Jenkel. That was super, super fun. Um, I have a joke for you. I don't know if you watched the new Neil Brennan um, comedy thing he has. Um, he's a comedian I really like, and he had this joke that I wrote down to share with you. He, he's an atheist, Neil Brennan, and he says that atheism is the height of white privilege. Think about it. Religion basically says, hey, can we interest you in an afterlife? And white people are all like, no, thank you. I'll just take my supplements. I'll be fine. <laughs> and it was such a good, the way he delivers it. I don't have any delivery. I'm not a comedian, but the way he delivers it, it was so good. And I was like, you know what? There may be a little bit of truth to that. You know how comedy is. There'll be a laugh, but there'll be a little kernel of truth in there. Anyway, I really enjoyed yeah. watching that. Sweet, sweet. Um, I'm excited. Just before we went live here on the show, you were telling me about some of the the upcoming projects. I was telling you about one. Uh, we should have some good material kind of filling up the next uh, three or four weeks uh, pretty easily and, and excited for the listeners to, to kind of get a view for that. I was just telling you, I'll show you here really quick. Uh, Native American flute. Um, my friend Jess Fouts uh, gave this to me as a gift in memory of my mother. And there's a whole story behind that. I won't share that here. But uh, next week's episode, I interview Jess and she plays a bunch of instruments. Her and uh, uh, her uh, work partner, Jacqueline, they do these like a uh, sound meditation healing retreats where they just have like 20 or 30 instruments and they'll just pick five or six and they'll play them over the course of a few hours and help people to kind of deal with some hard things and some of the science behind what music does for us. Um, because again, music has been a tool of humans for uh, probably a few hundred thousand years. Um, there's some science behind music being something that does some real work with our central nervous system and uh, other parts of our body. And so I'm excited to share that with folks next week. But um, today we're going to talk about uh, Jesus. We're just a few days away from Christmas and you had said something uh, about a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, said, you know, why don't we take uh, the New Testament, take uh, Joshua bar Yosef, uh, Joshua, son of Joseph, and uh, go into his life. You and I don't think that Jesus resurrected literally on the third day. We don't think he really walked on water, but those might be the least important things that he gave us. And so we thought maybe today we would jump in to uh, the Christ figure of the New Testament and see what things he said that were of, of worth. Do you remember, Bill, let me just stop you there. Do you remember Please. a few years ago? I don't, you'll have to tell me when it was, but 
it, I think it was during a place where the podcast was really going into uh, your Mormons, your Mormon discussion podcast was really talking about some difficult things. And you, one year you just read the whole Christmas story as a podcast with mm. no commentary. Do you remember that? Yeah. Um, yes, but I don't, but vaguely. Mm. And there was a time, you know, I've got a podcast out there called the mythical Jesus podcast and it's at Christoffaith.org. still there. There's 27 episodes or something, but I was just taking the new Testament and, you know, like, Hey, forget Christ as a literal figure who did these literal supernatural things, but let's see if maybe there's some teachings in here that are of deep worth. And, um, the Christmas story itself, maybe I'm rambling here, but the Christmas story itself, there is lots of things in that story that we uh, impose uh, going a certain way and in reality not. Just one example is Jesus being born in a manger and how we depict that and, the, and no room at the end. And the reality is he's probably at a family member's house. Once we understand those words in Greek and Hebrew, uh, he's probably at a family member's house. There isn't any room in the main part of the home, so they had to stay in the lower part of the home, which was kind of a, a place for the animals. And it was a much different picture being painted than kind of the depiction we get around the nativity story. But anyway, for what it's worth. Yeah, I love, I just love the idea. I loved when you did that years ago when I was just, just listening to the podcast. And I love... Um, what I, what I really wanted to do is I loved that each year you would kind of give us where you were at with Christmas, right? And sometimes you just, you know what, let's take a break from what we're doing and I'm just going to read the Christmas story. Or um, sometimes you would dig into, yeah, dig into a different kind of Jesus. or And so I just love the idea that, you know, every time around Christmas time, we'll take a little pause from whatever, you know, we're into on the podcast lately and just talk about how we are meeting Christmas that year. You know, what about Jesus's teachings can we still take with us on our journeys and what things are, you know, not resonating with us that we're going to leave behind. And if anything, I just want it to be something where we're giving people permission to do the same because I have, I had a lot of clients this month before I kind of shut down my hours who really, you know, they're in the midst of faith transition, or they feel like they have kind of put a lot of their faith transition behind them, but then have no idea, like, how do I meet my family and my community with this holiday? And I got all this baggage and what do I do? And so I just love the idea of just taking a break and, and you showing things that still move you about this Jesus character and me sharing some stories that still resonate with me and then giving other people anyone listening, you have full permission to meet Jesus in however little or much, you know, you want to meet him. But there is something about coming back to this Jesus character and from a place of, you know, studying wisdom from the outside and recognizing things in Jesus that you didn't notice before. And I think that that's a really interesting journey for people to take that can be really valuable and really healing for around Christmas time when you feel like, you're different than everybody else in your family. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 I wonder if before we start sharing some of these stories, if maybe you, and then if I could maybe just talk for a minute about how we do value the new Testament or value Jesus within it. Um, do you mind sharing maybe a few thoughts? Yeah. Um, so for, 
and and this is going to be a common story for people, but for a few years, really during the kind of the midst of my deconstruction, especially God deconstruction, I really couldn't touch Jesus for a while. Like it, it was just out there. And my kids um, really weren't getting any Jesus messages from me. They weren't getting any God messages really either. Right. I was too triggered. I was too um, hurt by all of this and deconstructing this. And then I don't know what to say to my kids. And so they just totally miss it. Right. And in the past, I would say two years, especially maybe two or three years, I've been able to kind of go back to my children and say, you know, hey, this Jesus character that you see the crosses and you see, you know, what's going on here. Here are some teachings that really change the world. It changed people's ideas about love. And I was able to kind of return and talk more about Jesus as wisdom teacher. And I especially teach uh, my kids when I'm trying to help them find some way to relate to Christmas now, right? Um, I really just focus on the principles of radical love, especially love, you know, to the marginalized, right? To the people that um, are hurting and and that kind of thing. So the Good Samaritan lesson is is a lesson that I gave on Sunday to my kids. And that's been a way that I can, um, for myself and for my family, come back to the Jesus character. But I had to put them on the shelf for a while. And I think it's okay that people do that or people know that they can do that, that they don't have to um, make sense of Jesus today, you know, especially if you're in a faith transition, because you and I have read many books on, you know, radical Jesus and heretical Jesus and all these zealot Jesus kind of books to help us um, make sense of it. But yeah, that that radical love piece is something I can still hold on to and teach to my kids and and create Christmas around without having any, um, you know, I'll even say the Christmas story. It's an interesting story. You know, I don't have to make a big deal about it. Um, but I don't have to also, you know, say things that I know that I don't know, you know, I don't want to play that game with them either. And I was never a Santa person. So we never did Santa in my house. So my Christmas, in fact, mutual friends of ours do the, the straw in the manger. And every time you do a service, you put a straw in the manger for baby Jesus. It's something I started years ago. Um, the Bloxham family created that. And so we do that and we never did Santa because I never liked lying to my kids. Um, And we just focus on that love principle and I pick out the stories of Jesus that I still love. And that's how we do it in our family. What would you do? So tell me how you're meeting Christmas. And then also tell me like if your kids were five, seven, 10, 12, how would you do Christmas if your kids were young and with you? Yeah. Okay. Um, um, so first my kids are older and you're saying like, pretend if they're younger, I, I, we did do the Santa thing and I think I would do Santa all over again. I think there is, there is something again, everybody gets to choose their own thing. But for us, I thought there was something very magical about that. And soon as our kids got to an age, we were, I think every one of our children transitioned nicely to knowing the reality of that. Um, I don't have any of my four kids who express any trauma over that. And I, and I also know that there are kids out there who the way in which they learn reality about that story uh, has caused them some distrust in their parents and distrust in others and some hurt around being essentially lied to. Um, so I would probably do Santa again. Um, I, I really don't have a problem with Jesus. I'm going to stammer here for a minute, but I want to try to 
flesh out of an idea. When it comes to the New Testament, I don't believe those stories are generally literal. I think some of it has some historical basis in people. I think there was a a Jesus figure, um, a religious zealot within the Jewish community who was rebelling against the uh, the leaders of his faith who were too much of sticklers for rules and judgment and shame. And when I look at the Jesus figure, I went back and read the New Testament with fresh eyes, and I was in awe of what the New Testament actually says in terms of how we should treat others and what is what are the people who are causing damage to a society and who are the people we ought to wrap our arms around and love and find more ways to make safe spaces for. And when I read it that time around, seeing those things, it was very different from what my faith community had taught me about the Jesus figure and who he judges and who he shames. And um, I, I think there's still value in the teachings of Jesus of the New Testament but there's two caveats. One, not as valuable as other voices in in the midst of my life. I, I'll I'll just put Brene Brown at the very top. Um, studying her books, her work, and I say study, but reading and thinking deeply about her work, I find much more value in how we humans ought to treat each other than than say Jesus of the New Testament. I think uh, folks like Jack Hornfield from the book that we did with Buddhism for Beginners, there's a lot more good practical advice there. Uh, folks like Eckhart Tolle or Sam Harris or um, Krista Tippett, just podcasts like Krista Tippett where she does on being and interviews different people and just lets them share their life and draws out kind of deep human uh, deep human pieces going on and in, in interwoven in people's lives. So one caveat is I don't think it's the most valuable voice we could listen to. I think there's a thousand others. Uh, I don't see the Jesus of the New Testament of having any more value than, say, the Bhagavad Gita or the Quran, although there's a lot of debate, and I'd be happy to engage that someday on what's healthy and unhealthy in those books, because I think there's a heavy dose of both. And then the, and then the second caveat would um, not only be that there's value uh, in the Jesus voice, but not as much as other voices. It would be that just to the idea I just said, which is the New Testament, even the words coming out of Jesus's own mouth are both good and bad. There are things that Jesus says that I would not want him to say, that he is creating unhealthy spaces of judgment and shame or um, teaching something that my inner gut tells me isn't true. And, and because people trust those words uh, explicitly, it leaves very little room to kind of pick it apart and say, okay, these are the 70% of things I would keep, and these are the 30% of things I would throw out. And I bet it's somewhere in that range for me, 70, 30, 80, 20. Um, so with those two caveats, I'd, I'd say that the New Testament is still worth study, still worth thinking about and wrestling with. And I have, and still do, though not as much, still do find value in checking out the New Testament. Any thoughts there from you? Yeah, a couple. Um, so let me, I'm going to ask you this, but I'm also asking the audience if you're watching this live, because um, I'm curious to see if anyone else is triggered by this. So with the Santa that you were talking about and, and the magic, um, I think the thing that stops me from being able to do that, and I want to know if anyone else have has this triggered too, 
I get really irrationally triggered by Christmas movies that are like forcing kids to believe when they're starting to have doubts. And so like a movie like Polar Express, the kid's like researching the North Pole and he's like, I don't think, you know, this is not adding up. And throughout the whole movie, it's like, get this kid to like, just believe, just believe anyway, just believe. And (laughs) I am so, I spent so much time in this faith deconstruction space and I have so many stories that I hold and and I think you do too, that every time there's these movies where the kid is doubting and these things are not adding up and then the movie somehow ends with, with, uh, you know, the good ending is that they decide to believe anyway. I don't think that that's a value anymore. I am not on board for that message. I don't like it. I, I also think for a lot of kids, like Santa and God get really mixed up. You know, it's like this white bearded man in the sky that answers wishes to people who are on the good list. And I am, Nobody thinks this much about Santa. Nobody should. Nobody should be triggered by Santa. But this like just believe stuff around Christmas time, around a Santa Claus in the sky with gifts for you and all of that, I cannot handle it. I am watching Polar Express Polar Express with my kids having like a triggered response thinking, "No kid, you don't have to be- you don't have to believe." Don't don't doubt your doubts, kid. <laughs> and I I am so traumatized by this that I just cannot do Santa and I can't do any like just believe Santa movies. I it's too much for me. I don't know. Do you get that at all? See, this is probably too much for anyone. No, no, no. I'm I'm with you. There's a certain level of deception in passing out the Santa story. And you know, we have all these um cultures that have little deceptions in them to their children. There's a Native American tribe that uh, the adults dress up in costume and then scare the hell out of the kids. And when the kids turn like 12 years old, the uh, the adults let them into the trick. And then now they get to dress up too and also scare the children year after year. And I'm not a big fan of that. And I probably would do Santa all over again. Um, the other thing I'll say too about Santa the adults in this world who are most eager to get close to your children, most willing to get close to your children, probably are the adults you should be the most careful of. And so Santa is a really easy one. If you've got a grown adult man who loves to be in costume and put kids on his lap, I probably would second guess any stranger's motives um, who wants to be in close spaces with my children. Yeah. And there's a lot more, I, I see it with parents now. There's a lot more cons- We're giving kids hopefully a lot more consent about, um, you don't have, if you don't want to, you know, these pictures where you make the kid cry by sitting on Santa's lap and you force them to sit there. Yeah. I, I see that slowly going away where kids are able to choose like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that because it's a little terrifying. Anyway, I have, end of that story is I have totally sometimes even irrational responses to just believe Santa stuff. Um, it's, it's difficult for me um, because I kind of, I feel like that little kid, you know, I was that kid trying to figure out stuff and I didn't want people to tell me these little 
have truths or to keep truths for me. And I don't know. I spiral about it when I watch Christmas yeah. movies. And you nailed it um, on the connection with God and Santa. There's there's a lot of overlap and I think intentional. And it also clouds up kind of that self-discovery around what's real and what isn't. Yeah. yeah. To be fair, though, I mean, I'm sure my kids are just watching these Santa movies and just enjoying a Christmas movie with their family. And I'm like yeah. totally spiraling about yeah. something. Yeah. So. <laughs> That is also true. Um, but I do like what you say about the New Testament. There's 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 stuff in there that is valuable. But like you said, it's also we recognize the value of it often because of the wisdom we're bringing into it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Any person who really has um, a really beautiful understanding of mystic Jesus, mystic teacher Jesus, often had to, like, like you say, expand their wisdom material to outside of Jesus. And then you can come bring that wisdom back to Jesus and say, oh, there's something here. There's something here about living simply, right? And and warnings about money and warnings about pride and warnings about um, desire and all of this. And you can almost like recognize it. But I feel like you can't get it all from the New Testament, like you're saying. And any one person can go into the New Testament and make some changes and make it better, right? Because it's not yeah. a perfect document. So it's almost like, yes, it's a wisdom text but it's often the wisdom that you're bringing to the text that makes it you know a wisdom text and it reminds me of we were talking about this um the other day about jefferson's bible where you know jefferson's getting sworn into the bible but he's like a deist at, at best and he um skeptical about god skeptical about certain truth claims certainly in the bible and so he cuts out the parts of jesus that he likes the stories that he likes and he pastes them together and he creates what's called jefferson's bible to get sworn in on and you know i kind of love that approach it's all, it's really what we're doing today this is our kind of jefferson's bible of we'll do christmas but these are the stories that still resonate and this is kind of what it means to us and we're going to take out you know the scriptures in the New Testament that say that women can't teach or speak. You know, we're going to just leave that to the side. We don't need that yeah. today. Yeah. And I'll add one last thing, and then I'll jump here into the first one, which is yeah. if you, uh, if you're a Christian and you are, you understand Christianity through your Western lens, you really haven't studied much Eastern thought. You're not very familiar with, uh, you know, even just Buddhism as kind of a, kind of a uh, entry level. And there's six or seven uh, prominent uh, Eastern traditions um, today that are held as religious ideology around the globe. And it really is crucial. I, I would just say maybe as important as anything in understanding Jesus, his own words, and his own intention and what he's trying to say would be to have a really good grasp of Eastern thought. Um, I think if you try to see Jesus through a Western lens, you are about missing probably 80% of the boat just, just by not being aware of kind of what Eastern thought is and what it's trying to connect to. Um, but, but with that, I'll jump here into the first one, which is the parable of the sower. And I'll just read uh, a few of the verses. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd gathered that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake. While all the people were along the shore at the water's edge, he taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. 
Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And, and then later on, he sits down with his disciples and he explains the parable to them directly. But generally, it's said that when Jesus taught, he, he kind of gave these parables and then kind of walked away and didn't give people the, the interpretation. So they were left to kind of ponder on it and in a, in a sort come up with their own. And, and by the way, I think there's a something I don't buy into is this Jesus trick where like, I'm going to just teach confusing things. No one's going to understand. And then later on, I'll just tell a few select people. Because I don't, I don't think that's super helpful if you're, if you're Jesus claiming there is a specific interpretation. I think it's much different if the Jesus figure had said, hey, it's open for everyone to kind of just think about and figure out how, it, how it's meaningful to them. But this first story, the parable of the sower, I love it for a couple of reasons. One is the realization that um, there are inner reasons for why a message may not connect with us in a given moment, and there are outer reasons. And sometimes we're just too young, we're not far enough along in our own life, that the the ground inside of us just isn't fertile for certain messages. And that we have to experience life, um, we have to uh, be be kind of in a certain moment sometimes for certain messages to stick or for us to see what's really going on there. And, and then there's also these outer circumstances. Sometimes we're in places where the people who have influence on us, for instance, if I were to go back 15 years ago, there are about 99.9% of the messages in the world that I would have not been able to hear because my religious system prepared me to exclude almost all of it and to only make room for things that sounded familiar or came directly from my system. And so there are outer reasons for why we don't always hear things or a message doesn't resonate. Um, and so there's that. There's also this idea that when the seed is being cast out, it sometimes, you know, if it lands on the perfect ground, it it blossoms into the perfect thing. But even in other places, it, it can grow a little bit or make a slight difference. And I sometimes... Uh, am aware that something really important, um, I've either learned it or I hear someone else share something and I can just recognize that the per the other people being taught the message or listening to the idea, they grab it a little bit, but they don't grab it a ton. And um, I I'm okay with that. Like, again, I think everybody has a time and a season to when they can think about certain things or act on certain things. And I think this parable is a, is a great one to explain that people are different, uh, times are different, uh, who, people, who people see as their voices of authority, the kinds of environments that people, that ideas can thrive or, or die out, that all of that is unique to any given moment and to who's in that space. And it also kind of teaches us not to really judge like, yeah, you could, you can start to assume where the fertile ground is, but the parable seems to clearly explain that 
that seed is cast all over the place and we only really know where the fertile ground is on the back end of things when when things thrive and grow and so we ought to not judge on the front end who is worthy or who is ready uh to hear a a divine message a spiritual message and so i think i don't want to do the religious thing where i go around trying to bring people into a faith or a church but when something shows up in my world that doesn't seem right um my way of judging whether this is a good moment to speak up or not has little to do with if i think the person just won't hear it. Now it's a whole nother story if I think they'll hear it and and be offended and do something, you know, take some hurt from it. I don't want to do that. But if I think they're just going to ignore it, that really doesn't play a part. I, I try to throw out sound ideas whenever I can to whoever I can. Yeah, that's so interesting. I wasn't sure where you were going to go when you wrote that you were going to talk about this parable. Um, but I really love this message of compassion that you pulled out of the text. I don't know if that's See, when that lesson was originally taught to me, it was always the idea that, um, you know, the seed was only the gospel of this church, right? That's how it was interpreted. And so you pulled out this kind of message of compassion there that was never, you know, that, that interpretation was never taught to me. So that was interesting. The thing that comes up for me as you were talking was, um, and, and you hit on this, is this idea that when the when the seed didn't grow it didn't say in the parable that it was a bad seed right it 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 always talked about the soil and so that's such a compassionate way to look at people and such a buddhist idea right there's a buddhist parable that's similar where it talks about um you know when you look at a tree and how it grows you don't say like well that's a bad tree you think oh like the wind knocked it over or um it had a drought and so it didn't grow for a couple years or grow in this direction and you never say you never look at a tree and say well that's a really that's just a bad tree um you and if you want the tree to grow better you know that you just have to give it more, more soil, more sun, more water, right? And so that's a very Buddhist idea too of of there's no bad seeds. Um, there's just better and worse soil. And that's a more compassionate way to look at people. And so you pulled that out of that text and that was really beautiful. Sweet. All right, next one. This is one I put on social media because I had also, so if you follow me there, you might've heard this little rant I do, but I had a lot of people clients this week who are really just in pain, not, not just with faith transition, but around Christmas time where you feel more isolated from your family that hurts and it's really hard. And so this, my favorite interpretation, this is probably my favorite Jesus story and it's the good Samaritan. It's just, it's my favorite story from the new Testament. Um, it's really just that radical love that I just still am inspired by, but there's an interpretation of this story that I really appreciate for this community and for myself. It was one shared to me, by the way, from David, our Sufi friend who's been on the podcast before. He taught this to me when I was a kid. And um, so the Good Samaritan story in Luke 10, uh, it says, Jesus says that a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the beginning of the parable often has a lot of juicy nuggets if you want to play the symbolism game. And Jerusalem to Jericho, you know, Jerusalem's at the 
top of the mountain. It's the Covenant City, and Jer- Jericho is on the way down. It's um, it's not a covenant, you know. It's not the Covenant City. It's it's um, closer to sea level, and so symbolically, it's it's this man took a path downward, left the Covenant City, was attacked by robbers, and they stripped him of his clothes, leaving him half dead. And so in medieval times, when they played a lot of symbolism, did a lot of symbolism with the text. What this meant was uh, someone left the covenant city. They lost their clothes, which would be their garments, you know, their holy, their holy clothes. And they were left half dead. And if you're reading this spiritually, the half dead is they're spiritually dead. They're spiritually wounded on the side of the road. Um, so a Levite goes by, which is the priesthood. The priesthood cannot save you in that place. Um, a priest goes by, which is the church. The church cannot save you in this place, but a Samaritan comes, takes pity, bandages his wounds, pours oil and wine, and he doesn't take him back to Jerusalem. And he doesn't say, I'll bandage your wound. I'll bandage your rooms. If you come back to Jerusalem, he tended to him on the side of the road, right in the wilderness um, and, and took him to the innkeeper. And to me, this story is not just about radical love, but it's about loving people who are hard to love, right? Not easy to love um, people outside your, your tribe, but also for this story, to me, it's a story of loving people who are feeling spiritually wounded on the side of the road and how the priests and the Levites and the church will walk by. And if that isn't a prediction for, you know, what's happening in, in the broader world of religion, I don't know what is. And a lot of that I'm obviously reading into the text and who knows what Jesus meant by that and all of that. Um, but I love this kind of symbolic story that I can pull out from the text of this person being spiritually wounded and real love shows up in the wilderness, in the trenches, in the blood, um, not judging this person who, you know, why, why have you left Jerusalem? And I always like that about the story. Oh, you're muted, Bill. Sorry. There's the part where the Samaritan is, kind of half in the Jewish faith and they're really not seen as being fully included. Right. And, and again, I don't know, you know, what the facts are behind that. I've not really studied that out, but from that point of view, the, the main gist of the story you just shared for me is to put your money where your mouth is. And that often the folks who you would think would be first in line to help because they're the ones who claim they're the good guys helping in reality are nowhere to be found when real people need real help. And uh, that, you know, to have the Good Samaritan show up after others had passed by, um, there really are a lot of good people in this world who do a lot of volunteer work and giving to real charities that that do good. Um, you know, we've got a, a listener down here in Southern Utah, his name's Roger. And he goes to the like soup kitchen every week. He collects food from Costco. Um, you know, they take the like the muffins that are one day past due, and he'll make sure that they get into a family's hands that that could use some food. And um, there really are a lot of people who blood, sweat, and tears try to help out folks around uh, their town or their city that really need deep help. And it's often not 
the people who from a surface level you would think would be the ones who are doing the helping. And I think the Good Samaritan is a reminder, not just of, hey, help people when they're down, but also to open your eyes and be aware of who you thought would be helping but isn't. Yeah, which is exactly what I used that parable for because I was essentially calling out the light the world community and saying, I know you want to light the world, but as you're so busy trying to do these little activities and these little, you know, projects, there is someone in your family, there is a friend that you have that is in faith crisis. Statistically, that is true. And they are hurting and everyone is walking past them on their way to do their white light the world thing. And I essentially kind of used that to call that out because I was getting so sick of this light the world stuff when I had just so many clients who were just like, my family won't sit with me in this and I'm so alone. And it was just so heavy on me this week. I'll also add, you know, the, the, the juxtaposition of sympathy versus empathy. If I can, walk by a vending machine, throw $10 in and go there. I, I help feed somebody, you know, um, I guess it's better than nothing. And there is real time that could be spent doing real help. And, uh, I don't know, vending machines might be the easy way out, um, for us. So anyway, definitely. All right. What do you got next? All right, this is a really short one. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Uh, he went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And I could never have seen it this way until I kind of deconstructed my faith and got to the other side. But what I see here is somebody teaching with inner authority, right? Like they have, they've figured out some things in life. They no longer accept hook, line, and sinker, the system that was handed to them. And they have an inner authority or inner wisdom which, with which they teach. And as I look around the world today, I mentioned one of these names earlier. The, the book that the four of us did on that Buddhism for Beginners, Jack Cornfield, the author, uh, last name starts with a K, not a C, and when I listen to those 12 parts of him, and, and it's, it's an audible book, it's a book on audible, but it's not really a book. It's 12 in-person presentations he's giving that are recorded as he's giving them. And as I hear him talk, it doesn't matter what subject he goes into. He's got beautiful stories to connect to them. He's got a beautiful inner wisdom. He really does understand humanity and he really does have sound advice for how we can reduce suffering and be happier. And when I was taught this scripture inside my faith system, I, I recognized, you know, and they're imposing on me that, that, you know, our leaders have priesthood authority. Our leaders have the keys. Our leaders can, are the only real ones who can do the real supernatural magic things and make rituals count. And on this side of things, I, I just realized that all throughout all kinds of traditions and no traditions at all are people who have really sat with themselves, sat with the humanity of others, have experienced a lot in life, and have learned deep wisdom from that. And when they speak as one having authority, 
um, which I think happens way more often than we recognize. There are folks who really understand what, what's going on in this world when rubber meets the road, and they are the real people that we ought to sit at the feet at and listen to. And so again, Brene Brown's another one. Um, she is an expert in a handful of fields. And she may be more of an expert in those fields than just about anyone else on earth. And often our lens of the tradition we came from has us excluding voices that don't sound familiar. But when we give people like Jack Hornfield or Brene Brown the chance, we can recognize very quickly that they speak as those who have authority. And that authority is something very different than what I was raised to think it was. Yeah, I think that all mystic traditions, I'm thinking of of Sufism, but I know Christian mysticism and, and any mystic form of whatever religion will always kind of have this teaching of this internal compass, of this internal knowing that you can't give to anyone else. And so I love how Jesus says, the law says, but I say, right? And so like the law says, but I say. And if he can do that, and then the most frustrating thing about religions is when they do the opposite thing as what's said in their holy books. And so, you know, eventually Christianity becomes this thing where it's like, well, no, the law says, and it's like, no, 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 no. That's not what Jesus did. Like he's standing there saying the law says, but I say, but I say, and then we're not allowed to do that too. Isn't Jesus the way, you know? So um, I think that that concept is there again in all of these wisdom traditions of of your internal authority matters, and it it wasn't like Jesus only did internal authority, right? He understood the law, he quoted it sometimes, and it was like this this mix of both. You know, here's what some people have said, and here's what I say, and here's what I think, and how he mixes it together because those two things have to be really in balance, or else you get you get off. You're muted. I'm going to have to just leave it on. Um, another little side point here is that you, you and you and you nailed it at the beginning, which is you said something along the lines of Jesus is the, the teachers are teaching this thing within the religion, and he's kind of disagreeing with them. And it's just to note that religion, especially unhealthy systems, unhealthy systems keep laying out laws and rules and to-dos and to-do-nots. And it becomes so congested that it often becomes deeply contradictory to itself. And as a critic of my prior faith system, I'm often pointing out the hypocrisy or the contradictions in its teachings, in its leaders speaking out both sides of their mouth. And and the response from the inside of the, the religious uh, system is that don't listen to that guy. We're the ones who have authority. It's our job to teach the doctrine. Uh, don't pay any attention to him. The reality is if we look at the New Testament, Jesus did the same thing. He, he noticed that the law did not accommodate uh, the folks fully, and at t and often the leaders of the system were teaching contradictory to the law, and he was constantly standing up and pointing out that the teachers of the law were hypocrites. Um, it, it surprised me deeply when I went back and read the New Testament with new eyes again, that the only people Jesus really seemed to be critical of were the leaders of his 
church, of his faith system. And it seems ironic to me that the kind of people that Jesus criticized are the kind of people who hijacked the system, rewrote the interpretation, and set themselves up as the gatekeepers for Jesus anyway. Yeah, totally. That goes into my next um, my next story, which I didn't write down, so I'm going to do this off the top of my head. But it, it goes right with what you're saying. Um, I always love the story of Jesus is in a home and he's teaching and he's healing. And then there's someone who's super sick and paralyzed or whatnot. And they go to the top of the roof and they cut a hole in the roof and lower him down so that he can meet, so he can reach Jesus too. And you and I both know people who looked at this system, looked looked at a religious system, either the one we came from or others, and said, there are some people here who are very wounded, who are not getting any of this radical love, who are not getting any of this community, who are not getting any of these wisdom teachings. Let's cut a hole in this roof so that these people can get that too. And their spots, of course, from the religious community, whatever it is, is like, you're cutting holes in roofs. Like that's not allowed. That's not okay. But I love that story of, of Jesus really, he didn't tell the guy to go away or like, why did you cut a hole in the roof? It's like, oh, I'm glad that you're here. Right. And so you and I both know people who we would call very Christ-like because they tried cutting holes in roofs because there were some people who were really wounded, who were not getting the benefits of being inside that building. And I love that story. Yeah. Um, the In that story, because that was one I wrote down as well. In that story, the, the folks who take that man to the roof, cut the roof and lower him down, I cannot help but grasp that they were deep friends of that person. It doesn't make any sense otherwise. Like to go through that much effort, to work through a crowd, to... to remove, you know, climb up on the roof to remove part of it, to lower your friend down, the the amount of effort, the amount of time, the amount of disturbing others, all in hopes that your friend will be cared after. Um, it, it really catches my attention and it causes me to pause in that story to think like, do I love my friends enough to go to the ends of the earth and back? And then the other thing, too, is that how Jesus responds, right? Like this man with some sort of paralyzed or palsy or something, he's lowered down into the home. And it seems like the obvious thing that needs addressed is that the man's paralyzed and his friends have lowered him down to be healed. And Jesus seems to notice that something else is more important. And I'm assuming that the person lowered down actually has as his priority list, his first priority is to be forgiven, to have his sins forgiven. And, and I'm not so much wanting to play into the sins forgiven and the, the religious ideology there, but rather that often when we see people with an ailment, with a behavior, with a personality trait that is maybe abrasive to us, or maybe, maybe something, a habit that's disgusting, that often we could see beyond it like Jesus did and see what maybe the more pressing need is, or to see the person's value outside of the obvious thing that maybe is a negative 
and to see some value there that's positive and also maybe to understand how they got to where they are. And I don't know that the story literally calls us to do that, but by Jesus not going after the obvious, it seems a reminder to me to not to to be present enough and aware enough to not just go with the obvious either. And there have been times in my life where I've been out with friends and somebody expresses some hurt and I know how the normal conversation flow would have gone like, Oh, that's horrible. Let me tell you my story. And, and then it just, it moves away from that person very quickly. And I'll, in those moments, I try to do something different and I'll try to sit for a moment with the person who's expressing something negative having happened in their life and ask another question to give them more time to talk about it. Cause I think often people throw things out and by the way in which we acknowledge it and then quickly move on to our story or changing the topic, we basically tell that person that their story isn't worth spending time on. And something really magical happens when you take just a few extra minutes to acknowledge that person's uh, hurt is of value and that you would like to know more, like say more about that. Like that had to have been hard. Um, Maybe speak to that a little longer if you don't mind. And how much people feel uh, empathy rather than sympathy when you spend a few extra minutes giving them the space to express their hurt and for you to acknowledge with your words that their hurt or difficulty is valid and that you you do grasp that that had to have been hard. And also recognizing that everyone has a wound like that, like everyone in your life has a story um, as Renee says, that will bring you to tears, right? And allowing people to, we heal when we share those wounds with each other and we can tend to each other's wounds. Yeah, I love that you that you picked this one. Um, I'm reminded of how Jesus, you know, when he was condemned for the kind of people he hung out with, it was like he made space for children and he taught women in a kind of radical way and lepers and people who were considered outside of the society. And it's like, what is happening with Christianity as a whole today? Like children, sex scandals that were swept under the rug, women who want you know, to be a part of it and to be seen and heard, and the lepers that aren't even in the society at all that we push to the outside are absolutely the LGBTQ community. And so I see just such Christ-like people who cut holes in roofs, for women and children in the LGBT community and people of color and anyone else who just said, I I wasn't invited into this home, right? I'm not allowed in here. Yeah. And religious leaders, again, if you read the New Testament without the bias of the system that you're in, religious leaders are the folks who are being uh, criticized by Jesus. And notice in the real world, especially with unhealthy systems, It is the religious leaders who set themselves above the law and make themselves unapproachable. Isn't that so funny? That's like the peak of just like how silly we are as humans is that I've been in multiple churches where that church, you know, claims to be the one true church. And so if you claim to be the one true church or the right way or the covenant people that by definition makes you the Pharisees in these stories. And I have never had a lesson, unless I was the one giving it, going on my soapbox. I have never had a lesson where you read this 
the Jesus parable and you consider your religious community as the Pharisees in the story. And what do we do about that? We are always the good guy and the hero and the Jesus followers. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like if you are, if this is your claim that you are the covenant people, you are that in the story. And I have never had a lesson where that was really addressed because we just always, I mean, it's, it's human nature. That's bigger than Christianity or Mormonism or anything. That's just human nature to read a story and say, well, obviously I'm the hero. Like, obviously I'm the good guy. And it's like, "Mm, probably we're the Pharisees in that story. Right. Yeah, totally. All right. Why don't you go to Jesus praise in a solitary place? Why don't you do that one? Um, where, which one is that? I've got the, uh, raises a dead girl. So go um, back. Yeah. Go back up to Mark one. We, we skipped oh, ahead yeah, a little yeah, bit because I stole it. one yep. of yours. Yep. No, no sweat. So Mark one 35 through 38, Jesus prays in a solitary place. Very early in the morning <laughs> starts in verse 35, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. You'll notice that a lot of the stories I picked out are ones where the unexpected sort of happens. And this one is an example of that, you know, Jesus very early in the morning, while it's still dark, he goes and finds a solitary place. And it says he prays, but in my mind, he's just being very present, meditating. I think sometimes, let me say it this way. I think meditation is one of the most important tools in the world. I think prayer can be similar and have similar benefit, but I think prayer is the thing that meditation got watered down to. And I think meditation is a much more effective tool than a prayer. And whenever I see in the New Testament, Jesus going off alone and it says he prays, I very much perceive him as trying to be present, collect his thoughts, doing some sort of meditation practice. And if you understand Eastern thought and practice, that plays very much into that. It's this idea that everyone's looking for him. He's needed. Meanwhile, Again, because he has this inner authority, he has meditated and he knows that he needs to go do something else. And I I just want to note that the world asks a lot of us. Our time is accounted for in so many places and we waste it in a bunch of others. Being present, being being aware, being uh, that healthy version of yourself when you really kind of are taking a deep breath and trying to slow things down in your mind so that you can take the moment for what it is often will those, when we do that practice, it will remind us of the more important things to be busy doing the more effective ways to do. And we will notice more quickly when we're overwhelmed and we need to do some self-care. And I often find Jesus to be going choosing to go places that he wasn't originally planning to go, doing things he wasn't originally planning to do. And a lot of those in the New Testament seem to come after he separated himself for a moment and meditated. And I think that's a big deal to notice that. I think it's a very important part of the story that never gets talked about. 
Yeah, for this one, I what comes to mind is is being a woman and being a mother, because often it's kind of expected that you're going to that your job and that it's easy to do because you're a mother is to unconditionally love all the time like Jesus did, right? That's the expectation. It's like, well, even for Jesus, he sometimes went into the wilderness for 40 days, even though people needed him, even people when people were wondering where he was. And it's like, if we could give mothers that same permission of like, yes, we, you know, unconditionally loving your children is a big job, but even if you are the son of God, you still have to give yourself permission that when people need you, that you go and and do some quiet time and do some self-care and do some, um, I've even scheduled it for myself. I've talked to my husband and the mental load that women go through over the holidays, making sure everybody has everything and the teacher and the bus driver and the, my kids therapists and the parties and then the stockings and all of that in, in my brain. And I scheduled, um, like a staycation, like a hotel day where I'm just going to go to a hotel and I'm just going to lay down and I'm just going to crash. And it doesn't matter if anybody needs me because I am in the wilderness and I am gone. And I, I wish that was more of the, the conversation for women that in order to unconditionally love people and be present with them in a way that, that Jesus did, you have to go sometimes out into the wilderness and be alone or else you can't do it. You will burn out. Yeah. And where you are needed or where you would best be served to be, and again, as you're pointing to self-care, isn't always where people are demanding you be and demanding that you do. And and some, you know, being wise to your own health, being wise to your own needs, um can help you see the difference between those. Yeah, like the expectation, like you need to have neighbor gifts. And it's like, no, I don't. I don't need to do that. You know, yeah. I'm going to go, I'm going to make sure that I'm okay so that I'm present for when my neighbors need me or I check on in, in on them and they, I don't need to put that on my plate. Right. Right. It's that permission. Totally. hundred percent. All right. So the next one that I love is Jesus turning over tables and it's more just to me, the actual action than, um, you know, trying to protect the temple or whatever, you know, religious message that you pull out of that. I just love that a part of being holy is sometimes going in and turning over tables and rocking the boat and saying, absolutely the fuck not. Like that is also part of being a holy person. And to me, it's not so much like the literal interpretation is, um, you know, we're trying to protect the temple because the temple's most important. And it's like, no, to, to me, this message is about when there's something terrible and awful and scandalous and even evil going on in places that are supposed to be of God, the correct holy response is some holy anger and saying absolutely the fuck not. And so to me, um, when we look at stuff like sex scandals in the, in the church, and it's like, that is this situation. The most holy thing to do in that situation isn't just to like quietly tell the leader and allow the leader to like call the lawyer and make the non-disclosure and do this all quietly. Don't rock the boat. No, when a children is hurt in a house of God, that is something evil going on in a place that's supposed to be holy. And the most holy response to that is turning over a table and saying, no, not here. 
we're not doing this here. And to make a big fuss and to make a big mess and rock the boat because that is not okay. And I love that response of like, holy anger has its place when you're a holy person like Jesus. He didn't walk in and just try to like, hey, we probably shouldn't do this, you guys, quietly. Like he made he made a mess because there was something evil going in a place that was supposed to be holy. And I think that is a great example for how we should treat things that are the worst, which I consider to be like when a man, when a man who's portraying to be righteous uses his power and uses even the actual building to um, to be a predator to children. That is, you know, we should be turning tables over that. And yet the message from the institution is often, let's take care of this quietly. Another concept that seems to be going on here, like at the heart of why he's turning over the like the specifics are that the the system built itself saying here's the temple the temple is necessary you all have to come here and you have to carry out these rituals and if not then you are something less than within our culture and we are going to in order to come to the temple and make these sacrifices you have to bring animals and you can't use your own you got to buy ours and and they're going to cost this and they're going to cost that and it seems like like when the church says it's got the cure and then it and then it imposes that people have to pay all these exuberant things whether it's their time their money in order to qualify for the saving ritual that will get them to heaven and it seems like a trick and i look around today and we can go back to the system we came from it's almost no different right here's the temple you need these rituals you need to go on a regular basis, but in order to go, you have to give 10% of all of your money. You have to serve in callings. You have to be able to answer these questions. And I think, I think on some level, Jesus saw through that, whoever Jesus was, I think he saw through that. And he, and it seemed absurd to him that put as a weight on the people's backs were the things that were needed to get to the edifice that the system said they had to go to for them to pay the price, the steep price um, to travel all the way to Jerusalem to, to buy, you know, 12 doves and three goats and, uh, and then to make those sacrifices in the temple. And I think he saw the racket that that process was. And I, I don't think that racket is much different throughout a lot of Christianity. Yeah. It reminds me of, this is just a little side rant. We, we try on this podcast to to do enlightening things, um, but I remember when when our our previous church, um, you know, now that you're talking about the temple, the old ritual used to be that when you go to the temple, the people would beg outside of the temple, people who were poor, people who whatever sick, and you would give money to them as you entered the temple. And so when the Salt Lake Temple was being built, and then they put a mall on the outside of it. And I was like, does anybody read the New Testament? Do you do you even know what the New Testament is? Like, if if you're saying that this is the temple, just like in Jesus's day, just like in the Old Testament, okay, then outside the temple was services for the poor. That was what it was around the temple. And we put a mall, like a Nordstrom's, like right there. And I was like, I, I was so upset over this because it was just so shocking to me that that like 
that was clear as day in the text that this is what was happening around the temple. And it made me so frustrated at the time. And I had a lot of holy anger and I flipped over a lot of tables because I was very upset about it because that's not what was supposed to be around the temple. It was supposed to be a place where the poor could go and receive help. If, and we put a Nordstrom there, there. If there is a true and living church on the earth, it sure as hell wouldn't be building a shopping center. Not, you know, if you're trying to do with the New Testament and you're trying to say that you're scripturally, you know, accurate with all of that, then, uh, you know, an addiction center, um, some food kitchens, like that would have been a great way to say like, no, we're doing it like, like New Testament style. This is a new, you know, these are ancient truths from the Old and New Testament. That would have been the way to do it. But man, we did not do that, did we? Mm, no. All right, so the next one for me is just just the phrase that Jesus wept. And I here's why I love that this was added into scripture. Um so this verse occurs in John in the narrative of the death of Lazarus. And so what I love about that is Lazarus's sisters Mary and Martha, they send word to Jesus that um he's died. And so Jesus is talking to the grieving sisters. And even if he knows in the story, like let's say that he knows that he's going to be able to heal Lazarus or Lazarus is in heaven, or I'm going to be able to bring him back. He doesn't do that right away. The first thing he does when he's sitting with his friends who are mourning is that he cries, he cries with them. And he doesn't, he apparently had the power in the story to fix it. And he doesn't. He cries first with them. And that's a little that's a little hidden nugget to me. That's a little piece of wisdom there that before there's healing, before there's new life, before the phoenix rises and all these in all these stories, he stops and he weeps and he feels the feelings and he just cries with Mary and Martha. I am so sorry. And he just cries with them. And I think there's wisdom just in that, you know. I'm gonna stop here and I'm gonna cry with you. Yeah. Like, that's really beautiful. Sometimes it may be the best and only thing you should do when someone brings to you a hard thing that they're going through. Sometimes we try to talk our way through helping somebody. And I think often adding words diminishes our ability to hold space with them. Mm. Yeah. You just, sometimes you just stop and cry. That's what Jesus did too. All right, next you have that raises the, a dead girl. Yeah, the, the interesting story, right? Like this uh, this girl's, uh, I'll just read it here. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, the large crowd gathered around him. And, and while he was by the lake, then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? 
You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And then and then the story continues, and I don't even want to focus on the daughter of the gentleman who came for help who dies because Jesus ends up going and ends up healing her. It's, again, this I'm caught off guard Someone has come to Jesus and said, my child is dying. Please come with me. There is an emergency going on and there is a rush. And I I'm always want to be careful because we don't want anybody to work with this on a literal standing, right? If somebody has an emergency and their kid is dying, you probably shouldn't stop for anything. But the story reminds me that it, in the midst of this emergency, Jesus seems to stop and give an adequate, empathetic amount of time to this other person. And I'm I, I'm surprised by it because it's not what I would have done. I would have ignored anybody don't, pulling at my, my clothes, anybody tapping me on the shoulder because this kid is dying. There's an emergency. I've got to go with this dad, and I've got to go figure out how we're going to help this kid. But Jesus seems to always be present. Um, he seems to know where he's needed and when he's not. And what can wait and what doesn't have to wait or what can't wait. And uh, it just, it, I think Jesus does hear what we don't expect him to, which he stops and spends so much time solving this other issue, spending time with this adult woman that now the guards come and inform him that this kid has already died. And he probably doesn't get there in time anyway, the way the story's told, but if you're the father, you're going to have some hurt there. Like you didn't rush with me and now my kid's gone. Um, again, I just want to note that Jesus seems to rise to the moment, no matter what's thrown at him. And it seems to be his being present that often leads to that. I do remember one time studying this story in my theology program and there seems to be some evidence, um, do with that what you will, that um, this story, you know, because these stories were oral traditions before they were written down a hundred years later, right? And so um, there was a lot of evidence that this particular story was told by women to women, because men at the time, especially, didn't talk about women bleeding issues. Like they didn't talk about that. It was unclean. You don't touch them. You don't talk to them. You don't talk about it. It's gross and unholy. And, you know, and so the fact that this is a story about a woman who's bleeding and she's touched Jesus, which you don't touch a woman when she's um, bleed when she is, when she's bleeding, when she's menstruating is what this um, may be referring to. Uh, but then, you know, Jesus stops, like you said, he stops his errand on whatever people needed from him and just was present with this woman who has probably never been touched if she's had a bleeding issue for 12 years. And he spent time with her, right? And he saw her. And so this was a story, I think, of women telling this story to women for possibly generations before it was written down of this guy, Jesus, who was off doing really important stuff and people needed him and he was doing all these things, but I was bleeding and he actually stopped and saw me 
and like really saw me. And for a woman, I mean, for a woman now, that's something really powerful and incredible for, for men to stop and really, really see you and really see your suffering. For a woman 2,000 years ago who couldn't even be talked to or touched or allowed in society if they were had bleeding issues, um, that would have been absolutely next level. Like you said, like it, it, it's shocking. It's something that you don't expect. And I think that this is a story that's passed from women to women. Yeah, I love it. Beautiful. All right, so I'm gonna sh- I'm gonna do I'm gonna do something here. So I have a couple. I couldn't pick one from the Gospel of Thomas, and the Gospel of Thomas I think is one of the most you get really mystical statements from Jesus. And these are just really short. And I just I'm just gonna throw these at you, Bill, and just see what you think about these because all these kind of have the same kind of wisdom thing where like the story's going and then it ends in a way that you didn't expect it to end. So I'm just going to throw these at you. So Jesus says, let him, these are all from the gospel of Thomas, let him who seeks continue seeking until he finds when he finds, he will become troubled. When he becomes troubled, he will be astonished and then he will rule over the all. Yeah. Certainty turns into curiosity and, and curiosity is the questions rather than rather than having the certainty of answers that your system gave you, having the curiosity that opens you up to really examining the questions whereby maybe answers aren't even available seems to be a deep secret path into awakenedness. Mm. Imagine how churches would change if one of the, you know, one of the codes, one one of the scriptures that was really valued was that when you seek, you'll find, but you'll be troubled. Mm. You know what I mean? Because a lot of times when, when systems are trying to protect themselves, and we talked about this when we went over cults and there, there's, there's a controlling of information, it's like, oh, if you feel troubled, like don't go there, right? But here's Jesus saying, no, when you seek, you'll find, but it'll be very troubling. And then you'll be astonished and then hopefully you'll have some mastery over it. And it literally goes into what we were talking about when we, when we do the faith after doubt book with Brian McLaren, where it goes from simplicity, you're just seeking Mm -hmm. complexity, you're troubled perplexity. You're just astonished. And then harmony where you kind of are able to hold all of it. You're able to rule all right. And he's almost hinting to that kind of awakening journey, but I love that he includes that when you're seeking it, you're going to find some stuff that's troubling, which is a totally different message than I received in a religious system, which is if anything is troubling, then it's Satan. So don't look at it. Right. Amen. Yeah. All right. Next one. His disciples said, when will you appear unto us? When will we see you? And Jesus said, when you strip naked without being ashamed and throw your clothes on the ground and stomp on them as little children would, then you'll see the son of the living one and won't be afraid. Again, like it's just a totally different answer. Like, when are you coming again? When's the second coming? When, when are we going to be able to see, when are you going to, you know, be able to die and return and all of this? And he's like, when you strip naked and dance like a little child, then I'll be there. Yeah. And I can't help again. I could be hundred percent wrong, but I can't help but think that what he was trying to say there is when you really show up as your real self, like who you are, like what you are and not yeah. try to hide pieces and parts, not try to pretend to be something, but just really own your own humanity. Um, because again, it's this idea that, you know, Christ is already within all of us. 
um, if Christ is essentially the Buddha, right? Like if Christ is the awakened one, any of us, when we're in the, in the awakened state, we are the Christ, we are the Buddha. And uh, he didn't say anything about coming back down from the sky. He just said, you know, get naked, stomp on your clothes and, and essentially don't feel any shame about it. And yeah, be yourself. that's like a, that's a, when you know that you've dissolved your ego is like, you can just strip naked and dance like a child, you know? Who cares? And so I just, I love that answer of like, when's, when's the second coming? And he's like, you'll not be afraid when you can strip naked and just dance like a, stomp on them like a little child. And I just love that answer. That's a very mystical answer, right? Yeah. All right. Next one. There was a rich man who had much money and he said, I'll use my money to sow, reap, plant and fill my barns with fruit. So I won't need anything. That's what he was thinking of to himself. But then he died. <laughs> Anyone who has ears should hear. The story ends, and then he died that night, <laughs> and he doesn't explain any further. He just says, there's a message in there if you're listening. <laughs> what do you think? Um, it seems to – I always am wondering about this balance between I'm going to work my ass off now, and that way I can take it easy when I'm 62 and a half, or do I enjoy my life now and maybe not have enough when I'm 62 and a half? And, and this at least reminds me that there is two sides to that coin. And if you put all of your effort into working 20 hours, you know, 16 hours a day, you're going to just take, you know, half a day off a week. You're going to, you're just going to work as much overtime as you can. You're going to work two jobs and then you die of cancer when you're 37 and it was all for naught. And uh, there has to be a part of you that lives today. And I love, I have this fantasy now of going into one of those lessons that both you and I have sat in where the whole lesson is about being a sound investor. And, you know, I've had, I've had whole lessons where the entire lesson was about, you know, how to protect your wealth and how to be, um, how to work hard and how to, how to make sound investments and do all that kind of thing. And I would love to just stand up in the middle of the lesson and just say, well, here's what Jesus have to, has to say, you know. I'll use my money. I'll do all these things. I'll fill my barn so I won't need anything. And then he died. Anyone who has ears to hear should hear and then just walk out. <laughs> go into a little bit of debt once in a while. Mm, you know, go on a vacation. Spend, you know, go see a new place. Go go visit a, a family member or a friend who lives a little ways from you. Again, don't, nobody's asking you to be absurd about it. Nobody's asking you to max out all your credit cards. But mm -hmm live a little bit because all you have is this moment and you yeah. ought to experience learned, being alive. I learned that this, this time with, which I was open about with the podcast when my daughter fell out, fell out of the window this summer and we had never taken my kids to Disneyland because it's always like, Oh, we'll go in a couple of years and we don't, we don't really have the money. And, and she, she almost died. Right. And both my husband and I were just like, well, uh, we don't, you know, we'll have to work to pay this off, but we may not have tomorrow. And when my daughter came home from the hospital, we took our kids to Disneyland and it mm. was a hundred percent the right thing to do. And yeah. we couldn't pay for it that day. And now we have, right. We had to work and pay that off, but we were putting off that trip until I don't know when, right. Because it's yeah. never the right time and it's hard. And then she almost died. And so we just stopped everything and said, we're taking a family trip and we're going, you know, yeah. Because, you know, we almost didn't get the chance. All right. So yeah. next one. 
Okay, here's here's an interesting one. When you know yourselves, then you'll be known and you'll realize that you're children of the living Father. When you don't know yourselves, then you live in poverty and you are the poverty. It's very interesting. Yeah. What, in parts of my life where I pretended to be something I wasn't, I was always deep down in my gut discontent and resentful. And um, you can have the outward appearance of having your life together. But if you're not being your authentic self, if you're pretending to be someone you're not to make others happy, you will always be at a loss inside. Um, there is deep value. Um, I'm trying to find the actual part here where you read that again, the very beginning of it. Yeah. When you know yourselves, then you'll be known and yeah. you'll realize that you're the children of the living father. When you don't, you live in poverty and you are the poverty. When you know yourself, you'll be known. When you are yourself, people get to know you for who you really are. And whenever you pretend to be something you're not, everyone, you know, you might get the acceptance and maybe even the praise of people around you, but it never quite feels good enough because they're not actually praising you. They're praising the idea of you. Um, nobody wants, nobody really wants to be loved for the idea that they present of themselves. People really want to be loved for who they are. Yeah. And I love this message of poverty. And it's like, what is a homeless man lecturing me? You know, what is a homeless man telling me about poverty? Like he has, he has no assets. He has nothing. And he's talking about poverty in a totally different way that when you don't know yourself, you not only live in poverty, you are the poverty. Like that is, yeah. that's an interesting statement coming from a homeless man, right? It's a different yeah. kind of poverty. Yeah. All right. Jesus said, if you give birth to what's within you, what you have within you will save you. And if you don't have that within you, what you don't have within you will kill you. Interesting. Okay. I'm going to have to read this again. If you give birth to what's within you, what you have within you will save you. If you don't have that within you, what you don't have within you will kill you. You're going to have to tell me your thoughts. I'm going to, I would have to meditate yeah, this, on that for a while. Yeah. This one, again, it's just one of those surprising statements of what are you talking about and who's killing who? And, and I think it goes back to what we were talking about last time that when you give birth to that thing within you, right? So let's just say your, your awakened state or your best self or that egoless place and you find that and you give birth to that, that part of you will save you, will save your life. And if you don't go through that process, if you don't give birth to yourself, essentially, then what you don't have within you, not giving birth to that in yourself, it will kill you. Mm. That's, that's what I mm. got out of that. Okay, I like it. All right, last one is this, and this is all from the Gospel of Thomas. If you're wanting to find a way to maybe reach out to Jesus this year, but you don't want to go back and do New Testament or <coughs> or the stories you've heard a thousand times, um, I really recommend going through the Gospel of Thomas. You get these really get these really interesting phrases that, like Bill said, you can kind of sit with and meditate on. All right, last one from Gospel of Thomas. His disciples said unto him, "When will the kingdom come?" And he says, it won't come by looking for it. They won't say, look over here, or, look over there. Rather, the Father's kingdom is already spread out all over the earth and people don't see it. And this is what's so interesting about Christianity in general when there's just so much discussion about the second coming. And especially when you get into the the hoarders, the <coughs> the people who are getting ready for the rapture and they've got 
you know, guns and food storage and everybody's going to come onto my property. And they're just really, really intense about the second coming. And it's so interesting because in, you know, in these scriptures, everybody's asking him like, when, when is the father's kingdom going to come? And he's like, it's, it's already here. It's within you take off your clothes and dance naked. Like Jesus is not saying, you know, hoard bullets because the kingdom's father is coming. He never says anything like that. He says it's here and he says it's within you. And he says, strip naked and be like a little child and it's already here and you won't be afraid. And so that's just such a different rhetoric than what comes out of, you know, the worst of Christianity when it comes to rapture stuff. Yeah. Most religious systems in Christianity are expecting Christ to return someday and put everything back in order. And I think that view leads to people not taking very good care of the planet. I think it it leads sometimes to people uh, spending their time in another way and thinking they'll just be able to catch up when they get to heaven with those they love. And uh, maybe maybe it is right around, you know, just like the Christ within us from the parable a, a little bit ago, maybe the kingdom of God is already here and it's our job to see it and to be it. And uh, maybe we could have much greater effect on the world if we treated it that way, rather than some future moment where Christ will come out of the sky and reign for a thousand years. Yeah, I literally have people in my family who I know are avoiding conversations and say to themselves, I'll just have that conversation in heaven. And it's like, that's, you know, Jesus from these parables is not saying that at all, right? It's, it's saying be here now. And it's saying it's already within you. It's already here just over and over. And then of course we take that and, and subvert it into some, yeah, some theocracy that's going to come down from the sky. And it's just so different from what the text is trying to say. All right. I'm done with gospel of Thomas. So why don't you move us on? You're, you're muted. Man, I'm doing this way too much. Mark chapter seven, 14 through 23. Um, Let me just find the actual uh, verse 20. He says, he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within. Out of a person's heart, the evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. And I took this a little different direction. So first, I agree People, you know, religious systems are often worried about what foods you eat and, you know, where where you take a number two and how many steps out of the city you walk before you do it. it just, there's just so many absurd rules. But it, so that's one idea that I think he's directly hitting at, which is that there's all these laws and rules and they often have little to do with whether someone's trying to be a good person or not. And they can be a distraction and they can give people something to focus on that really has nothing to do with their goodness. And we see that in the system we came from as well, where you can't drink coffee or tea, for instance. And that's such a ridiculous litmus test for whether somebody is obedient to the thing spiritual or whether someone is a good person inside. But I took it a different way too, which is that we all have thoughts and our thoughts stay inside of our head. And we're not really in control of our thoughts. I mean, we can with intention create a thought in our head. We can with awareness change the thoughts in our head from one thing to another. 
But if you were to sit and pay attention to the thoughts as they run through your mind, which is often part of a, a meditation practice is to observe your thoughts, you'll realize that your thoughts aren't yours at all and that they are just constantly arising and going away with new things arising each moment. And, and my point is that it's only when your thoughts come out of your mouth as words or your thoughts come out of your body as actions and behaviors, do, does the outside world see your goodness or non-goodness, right? And so you take someone like, say, Mr. Rogers, and I have no idea what Mr. Rogers thought inside of his head. I watched the Tom Hanks movie, and it's kind of creepy. I don't know if you've seen that or not. It's a little creepy where it gives the perception that there's a lot of maybe unhealthy things going through Mr. Rogers' head, but that he always shows up and does the right thing. And so it wouldn't matter if Mr. Rogers had, was predisposed to abuse children in his head or if he thought really mean and nasty things about his neighbor or if he constantly had um, thoughts come up to, to do something atrocious uh, in the world. The only thing that matters is what we all saw. And so no matter what someone's thoughts are inside your head, you you do get, and again, I'll also make the argument there's no free will, but I do don't think these fight against each other exactly. You do get to decide what human being the outside world sees. And when you die, it will be that that people will remember you as. It will not matter what thoughts came into your head that you didn't act on, didn't say, didn't behave. So if good thoughts come in to do things and you don't say them or do them, or if bad thoughts come in and you do them or, or say them, the harm you're going to do in the world and the, the negative persona that people will see you as, you will be what comes out. It is what comes out that defiles you. Um, you get the chance every day. There, I, I, I do this in my life. I have thoughts like everyone else, and some of those thoughts aren't healthy. But I'm really trying every day to show up as a good human being. And so when a thought comes in to do something that's not healthy, I try to not carry that out. Because I know that it's only what comes out of me that defiles me. Yeah, I definitely meet that as a as a mother and like many mothers more than we ever realized um ha can have intrusive thoughts where our brain is so sleep deprived and so overwhelmed that you can start to think scary things about your kids and i automatically thought that i was a bad mom or not fit to be a mom but it goes back to what you said that that uh it was it wasn't until someone told me that the thoughts that you come into your head, you can't, not only can you not control them, they're just going to appear, but also um, it doesn't make you a bad person or a bad mom. For someone to tell me that it was normal to like have some, some weird thoughts when you're a mother with young children and um, you're in survival mode and it gets pretty scary in your brain. For someone to tell me that there have been great, fantastic, amazing mothers who have brains like that, especially when they're young and 
choose as best they can to show up as the mother that they want to be are not remembered for all of those thoughts. They're remembered for being a, a good mom. And that gave me so much hope that I just didn't know because nobody really told me that it was okay or it was normal and what matters is how you act. And, you know, you can't control the thoughts that come into your head. And sometimes our brains think of really weird or scary or even violent things. And you're just like, what do I even do with that? I must be a terrible person. And again, it, it goes back to the, the most freedom we can have as humans is that space in between your thought and your, your, your action and your reaction. And that's the most freedom that we get, but you can get a lot out of that little space of freedom and you can make conscious choices to be the person you want to be. And it totally changed my relationship to motherhood when I was able to, to understand that. All kinds. We have this idea that the good people, you know, somehow just think good thoughts. I just don't think that's real. I, I think uh, all human beings have good and bad thoughts arising all the time. And somehow good human beings seem to be the folks who figure out how to set one set of thoughts aside for the most part and to act on the positive ones. Mm -hmm. It was interesting. I, I just learned a couple of weeks ago, I was doing some studies with, with teen stuff that I'm doing and it's recommended for teens to not do shadow work. And I was trying to figure out why that would be, right? Because we've talked about shadow work as something really positive. And it was talking about essentially what you're saying, that that in order to understand that you have different thoughts and that you can have good thoughts and bad thoughts, but you have your own choices, you have to be a little bit older. Because if you really dive into that when you're 12, it'll kind of make you feel like you're crazy. Because they, when you're 12, you walk around and think most people are good and nobody's thinking of killing me right now or nobody's thinking something terrible in you know these people that are around me. Certainly not my mother, right? And that is genuinely what's good for a 12-year-old. They need to feel safe. They need to feel like they're not crazy and that nobody else around them is crazy. And that is the best thing for them. And you do shadow work when you're a little bit older and you realize um, – you know, I, I have some thoughts that come up that that um, I really don't want to act upon. And you start to dig into why and you dig into the psychology and you realize that everyone um, is constantly having to make choices with all the thoughts that come into their brains. Um, but it's not healthy for 12 year olds to know that, which I thought was really interesting because it'll make yeah. you feel like you're crazy. And, and, and part of what you're saying, too, is that kids should just know that the boogeyman is this invisible thing that might be under their bed and not really know that it might be the guy who lives three houses down. Yeah. It, it shocked me when I, I read this thing on motherhood that it was talking about why don't we have conversations about how difficult it is for mothers, especially in that first year. And someone wrote an article about the reason that it is, is because it's really hard for us to as as children we're all children to parents it's really hard for us to know that the thing that brought us the most nurturing love which was snuggling up onto our mother's chest which was just the safest most beautiful most sacred place in the world when you're a little child that her brain may not have been in that place like her brain may have been in a dark place during that time when we were receiving that nurturing love. And that's really hard for us to mm. wrestle with. And we have mm. to be older before we can kind of accept that truth. When we're mm. younger, we just need that nurturing love. 
need the yeah. innocence of it. Yeah. Yeah. You do kind of need the innocence of it, which I thought was interesting. Beautiful. All right. So last one for me. And then I have a short little Christmas message to sign us off here. So Luke 15 is the prodigal son. And I like this. I mean, even the simple message of this story of just uh, never being beyond forgiveness, never being, be, never going so far outside of your family that you don't deserve a place to come back and come home and that embrace that we all want from our family. So even at a surface level, I really love this story. But I also um, have read into this story from a Jungian perspective, which again, I'm, I'm bringing this to the text, but you know, that's what we do. So I love this idea of if you are reading this and all mystics do this, is that when you're reading a text, you are all the characters, right? It's not they are the the Pharisees and I'm the good guy. It's you are all the characters. This is about your soul, right? Mystics read all texts this way. And so if you're the father and you're also the son and you're also uh, the son who wants to be a little naughty, right? If you're all three of those, then it's talking about this relationship with yourself. And it's talking about, you know, the 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 son in you that wants to just do right all the time and be seen as the best um that's your ego right it's always working for you it's always there trying to keep your good name and then there's that shadow side of you that really wants to do some squandering really wants to push some boundaries really wants to to um to do things that might feel really fun and pleasurable and and that kind of thing and then there's this father that's big enough to hold both right the ego and the shadow the part of you that's working for your good reputation and the part of you that doesn't give a shit about your reputation because it wants to have a good time. Right. So we all have both of those sides of us. And so I love this. Um, I love this story on a surface level, but I also love the story at a mystic level, which is you are all the characters and you can, you be that person to yourself that can hold and embrace all of you. And that, that I really like that interpretation of that story that really spoke to me. I, I can really connect with that, right? Like in my life, I have been the person who has squandered things. And I have been the person who has judged others for squandering things. And I've been the person who just showed up with love to people who just were human and sometimes squander and sometimes do well with things. Like yeah. it, we are, we are all of those folks. Mm -hmm. um, it, it lets you see like which parts of those are the healthiest, which are the unhealthiest. Um, yeah, it, it's a great, I, I love that you did that. It's a great way to take the story and to liken the scripture under yourself. Yeah. Which is, yeah. What's going on in your old, in your own soul? How are you all of these? And, yeah. and we all want that. We all want, it's, it's the end of Encanto. If you've ever seen that kid's movie, I don't know if your grandkids are quite old enough, but it's the end of Encanto, which I cry every time I see it because it's kind of what everyone wants. It's the family turning to the main character and really seeing her gifts and right. Like this family embrace of, I see you and I see how special you are and I see your gifts. And we all want this from our families, but families are complicated. And so I love this idea that this, the story ends kind of, can you be that father to yourself? Can you be that safety, that warm embrace to yourself and not expect 
a Disney ending, which is your entire family singing at you about how great you are and how beautiful you are and how gifted and talented you are, which just doesn't usually happen to most of us. And yeah. so can you be that for yourself, for your own ego and your own channel? Love it. All right. So this is my last kind of Christmas message for you guys. And then I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to take the week off. This is where, I don't know if it's like this for you, Bill, but this is where the shit hits the fan for me, because if I were doing all these just really beautiful scripture reading today, just so inspiring. Our, our people who have been following along um, have been commenting just really positive things. And then my family's coming in and staying with me and my kids will be home from school. And I love the quote that says, you know, if you ever think that you're enlightened, spend a week with your family. And this is where it's going to get really tough for me. This is where it's going to get very unenlightened for me in the next week, but I'm going to do my best. And uh, so I'll be taken uh, Christmas break off to spend with my family. But I had one last really short Christmas message that still speaks to me, even though just like Bill, I don't believe in, in supernatural, a lot of the supernatural elements and claims about Jesus, but this part of Jesus still speaks to me. And it's this idea that it is an unwed woman who carries God. It is the pagans from the East who recognize God. It is unclean workers in the field who hear God. It's in a, it's in a barn where God is born. God is an immigrant. God is homeless. God goes outside the institution to be baptized to a wild man in the wilderness. God sits with sinners and children, and women, and lepers. God is a victim. God teaches about radical love. God throws things. God takes naps on boats. If there was a God or some really amazing wisdom teacher that people have called God, which is usually what Bill and I kind of approach it as, it's compelling to find God in the slums, on a cross, challenging institutions, challenging the power, teaching messages of enlightenment and love and warning always about wealth and power. So maybe you're, if you're having a hard time with Christmas or with Christian institutions this time of year, you know, there's something really inspiring about the idea that Jesus would too. And that's a comforting thought. And so that's just my last Christmas message. It still inspires me that if we're going to choose a God, if we're going to make a God, what's God doing on a cross What's God doing with the lepers? What's God doing with the children? What's God meaning when he says, just get naked and and dance and be like a little child? What does all that mean? And there's a comforting thought into, you know, if there was a God, that's where we would find him. Uh, challenging institutions, cutting holes in roofs, healing and sitting with people, crying with people. Um, that still inspires me, even even if he's just a wisdom teacher to me. Last thoughts, yeah. Bill? Yeah, I'm not really. Um, I'm not really. I have, I have no hard feelings against Jesus, and I have no hard feelings really against the New Testament. Um, I have hard feelings against all the people over a few thousand years who sabotaged the message and made it about something it wasn't. And I think if we can recognize, if we can parse those out, I think there's still room for those of us who have had a lot of hurt deconstructing being betrayed by systems, being taken advantage of and harmed and manipulated by systems. There is, I think, space there to reappreciate um, the Christ of the new Testament and maybe even the new Testament itself. And not that it is going to be a text that will save you in heaven, 
but maybe it can sit on the shelf along with a host of other books that add value and meaning to your life. And, and maybe it doesn't have to just collect dust. Yeah. And if at Christmas time, it's a hard time of year, you're not sure how you want to meet this holiday. And like you said, if you're someone who's been really damaged by religious systems, um, there's something still Christ-like. There's something Jesus-like by turning tables, by by crying, by helping people who um, on the side of the road that the Levite and the priest passed by. There's something really Jesus about doing all of that, that we can still meet even when we're out in, in the spiritual wilderness too. So that all, that all still inspires me. Love it. Beautiful, beautiful episode, Britt. I, uh, I really appreciate, I'm sure we'll do something like this again, but I really appreciate showing folks that there is other ways in which to still make meaning out of stories that people have let go and no longer believe to be literal. Yeah. And I do love, I do love this side of you too. I, I tell people once in a while, I'll get someone who will ask me where I podcast and I say, Oh, I podcast with Bill real. And they'll say, Oh, you know, he's a little too angry for me sometimes that maybe that's just where they're at. And I'm like, well, you should check out our podcast. Cause I get a whole different side of Bill, a really beautiful and a really tender and a really, a really wise, not that it's not okay to flip over tables, which you do on other podcasts totally holy to do so uh, to systems that are hurting people and causing damage. Um, But I also love this side of you too. (laughs) If Jesus can both love and flip over tables, then I sure as hell can too. Yeah. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot of aspects of you and I, I just love this, love this podcast and our time together and, and everything that you say. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please donate. If you can't donate, which I understand during this time of year, monies can be really tight. Um, please go and at least leave, leave us a review. Um, give us some stars and leave us some comments. I have people who are sending Bill and I, you know, I heard this person, can you interview him on the podcast? Or I had a person say, I really want to try to understand Taoism. So we're going to do a, we're going to do a, a podcast on that and anything that you can do to, to help support us so that we can keep having these conversations, which are outside the, the literal kind of what you would expect from a Christian podcast, but not your average atheist podcast either. And so if you appreciate us hanging around in in this space, uh, please find a way to support us and happy holidays and Merry Christmas and all the things to everyone. And I'll see you. Bill will be with you next week, but I'll see you in the new year. Um, Merry Christmas, Britt. And I hope that you and your family have an incredible uh, holiday season. Merry Christmas, Bill. Love you, friend. Take it easy. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.